Let's pray. Father, we thank you for being a good and faithful God. And I pray that by the conviction, by the calling, by the power of your Holy Spirit, that you would come after each of us today in the way that we need to be pursued. God, that you would uh, shake up our church, shake up each of us individually to see the places um, that we have not fully surrendered to you. Or places that were maybe once uh, surrendered, but uh, we have allowed to become surrendered to lesser things. Uh, ground to be taken that we never thought could possibly be taken. And so I pray that you would meet us as a church, meet each of us, pursue each of us in the way through your word and through the work of your spirit that would produce your glorious, fruitful work in each of us today. We need you. We can't do it without you. And so we invite you in every word that is about to be spoken. Do what only you can do. We ask it in Christ's name. Amen. You can keep standing. No, I'm just kidding. Take a seat. <laughs> Wouldn't that be horrible, especially with how long I go? Oh. Um, so this week, we are going to continue to make our way, if you want to throw up the picture of that map, uh, we're going to be continuing to take a journey uh, around Asia Minor. And uh, last week, we had a pretty interesting and intense stop in Thyatira, didn't we? Uh, that, was a, uh, that was an interesting week. And the hits just keep on coming because we are in uh, Sardis this week and it's a pretty intense letter, isn't it? It's a very intense letter and uh, it is one that each of us need uh, in our own ways. It would be easy to look at this letter to the church in Sardis and uh, maybe because of some of the lack of specifics say, ah, that was them, that's not us. And yet I would argue from the start, uh, there's a little bit of Sardis in each of us. And so my hope and my prayer is as we go through uh, not just the history of the city of Sardis, but the condition of the church in Sardis, uh, that we would, through the reading of the Word, through the work of the Spirit, uh, see where each of us stands today, lest we fall. And so uh, before I go into uh, the history, yes, I'm going to attempt to do history, and I know for some of you, except Stephen, who's just all smiles right now, like, yeah, we're going to talk about history, this is great. So you're like, oh man, can we just move on? And I get that, I get that. And yet, uh, boy, especially with the, the Church of Sardis, it is so crucial for us to understand uh, this city and its roots, because it really helps us to understand what is going on in this letter, and a lot of the ways in which Christ is actually addressing the church. If you guys want to go ahead and throw up that slide of, uh, this is a um, interpretive reenactment of what Sardis may have looked like. I want to give you guys a visual because my words aren't going to be that great to give you a visual. Uh, but I want to give you maybe a, a picture of what you would be looking at uh, somewhere between 1200 and 300 BC, as we talk about this city of Sardis, as you as you look, you see this this mountain with these 
steep slopes on each side. And below that, you see uh, the Hermes Valley, which was a beautiful place to raise a family. I mean, it was just the best. So fertile, so wonderful. And you see it had uh, beautiful access to the Hermes River, uh, which if you are into looking for gold at all, if you want to go make a claim in a river somewhere, if you've ever traveled west, uh, in the uh, 49, I, I don't know, what, 1840? Is it 1800? You were there, Slayton. It was 1849? Yeah. I love you. That was for JB. You, you called him a puggle the other week. So, um, no, if, if, you, uh, if you love looking for gold, this river right in front of Sardis was a great place to be. Uh, if you love herding sheep, uh, that Hermes Valley was a great place to be. And if you were a kingdom looking for a capital city that could not be taken by anyone, that big citadel or Acropolis or massive rock structure up there that was your place to be. And if you were in the Lydian kingdom, you were there for over 600 years. Sardis, ancient Sardis, was started about 1200 B.C. And so uh, the, the Lydians came by, they saw that beautiful rock and thought, that's a great place to start a city. And Sardis became its capital for 600 years. And the main reason is the top of that rock. Right? We've all played King of the Mountain before. We, we live in an area where there's snow. And you know that if you are at the top of the mountain, well, you're king. And it's, it's, it's good to be the king because it's really bad to be somebody crawling up the mountain of snow to try and knock the person on top off, right? If you've got the high ground, you just kind of get to do the ho, ho, ho and kick them, kick them right back down the mountain, right? Or smoke them with a snowball. And, This is very much what was happening for 600 years with anybody who tried to uproot Lydia and its capital. Because Sardis had this amazing rock face that once you're up there, the only way in was this slender little jagged path on the south side to make your way up. If you want to go ahead and show that second picture of the the ruins of Sardis, this kind of puts it in real life. You have... um, uh, a nice little temple, right? Every city has one. Yeah, they had one too. Uh, that was the ruins of the Temple of Artemis. You see the valley. And then up there is where the citadel would sit. And any time that the city was attacked, it would go from the, the lower fertile grounds and go up into this Acropolis, and they would have the high ground. And the only way in was that slender little path. And then it was just a simple game of King of the Hill from there, Right? They had the high ground and it was hard to take the high ground and nobody did for 600 years. And so this amazing city, boy, if you, if you were looking for a place to have your capital, this was it. And if you were in Sardis, you were secure. You had nothing to worry about because as long as you had that citadel up there, no one could touch you. What were they going to do? Scale the smooth rock faces on the side? Were they going to come on the other side of the Timolis Mountains? No. They had a little path to make their way up. And so nobody could touch this great city. They were believed to be untouchable. And for that reason, not just the, the gold resources or uh, they're working with wool and dye. They had so much natural resources, but it was that resource right there that was its greatest resource, its sense of security. And so for that reason, this was known as the, the crown jewel of Asia for so many years. 
That was until about 547 B.C., So regardless of its military stronghold and natural resources that made this city second to none, it was about to become second to somebody. Because at around 547 B.C., when uh, King Croesus, the king of Sardis, decided to pick a fight with Cyrus of Persia, it wasn't on his ground. He actually went out of the city to go and attack, and it did not end well. In fact, they, they got slaughtered. But the king was smart and decided, you know what, I'm going to scamper back to my citadel where I'm safe and sound. And so he made it up the narrow path and had all of his guards around him and he was safe and secure, even though Cyrus was fast on his heels. And yet he was in his citadel, right? He was in this this rock-faced tower. The city was safe. He was safe. And so you know what he did? Even though the army of uh, the Persians were at his door, He went to sleep. He went to sleep because he felt so safe, so secure, that it didn't matter who was down on that narrow path. He was going to sleep like a baby. And do you know what happened that night? The Persian army devised a little strategy to go and create a diversion on that south path that got all all eyeballs there, all their soldiers blocking there, because what else was there to really guard? And the Persians came up through one of those rock-faced walls, one at a time. One at a time. There wasn't a single guard on a wall. There wasn't a single guard just peering over the edge saying like, well, does anybody have any plan other than this one? Nobody. And one by one, they brought up a good enough size army to attack from the back. And then, when they turned around, the front came, and everything was over in a night. This great city that was so secure, with unscalable walls, nobody could possibly touch them, had fallen. And it wasn't the first time. Because as we know, the reason why we're reliving this history now is because, Stephen, what happens if you don't know history It repeats, right? That's what they say. That's what my history teacher always told me. I was like, great, can we repeat lunch and recess? Because I don't care about history. I don't want to do this again. But it was important for Sardis to learn this lesson. And they didn't. And so 300 years later, almost the exact same thing happened. Antiochus the Great took the city in an absolute repeat fashion. As one by one, he devised an attack that scaled the unscalable walls and took the untakeable city. And once that happened, and it devised this reputation of a place that could be taken, it was a pretty steep fall from greatness for Sardis from that point on. From here on, uh, it never really fully recovers. So if we fast forward to the city that we find in this letter, now under Roman rule and decimated by a recent earthquake in AD 17, Sardis rebuilt. It actually did rebuild, right? It got, it got wrecked, it got brought to ruins, and yet it did rebuild thanks to uh, Emperor Tiberius. Gave them an awesome tax break and said, here you go, guys, you can rebuild this uh, once wonderful city. So they did, but never to its former glory. Its famous citadel that we saw on top, the thing that it was most known for and most sought after because it was now in ruins. 
It was just a memory of what used to be. And as its gold dried up, and it really only became known for wool and dyes, Sardis was now clearly outshined by the other cities that surrounded it on the Roman roads. And what used to be the crown jewel of Asia Minor had quickly become nothing more than a trade route pit stop with a shiny past. And that's where we find Sardis today. All that to say, by the time of this letter, Sardis was still alive, but only a glimmer of its former glory. And as we now turn our attention to Revelation chapter 3, we see much of the story of Sardis the city playing itself out in the church of Sardis as well. Let's take a look together at Revelation chapter 3, verse 1, where Jesus says, And to the angel of the church in Sardis write, The words of him who has the seven spirits of God and the seven stars. I know your works. You have the reputation of being alive, but you are dead. And while not many details are revealed about Sardis in this verse, or really the letter as a whole, as you heard Chris read earlier, I think we should assume that if the reputation of Sardis was truly good, it was most likely rooted in history versus present-day activity. I believe we can assume as much for a few reasons. One, this church was believed to be started by the Apostle Paul or someone who worked in close connection with him, probably while he was ministering just a stone's throw away in the city of Ephesus. And it began at a time in the first century when starting a church was not a cool discussion to have as elders in a boardroom, right? We're having these discussions about, man, what would it look like to to plant a church? Is that something that God's calling us to do? That's so exciting. Guys, this was not an exciting time to plant a church. It was not the cool thing to do. It was something that was going to be instantly met with persecution, instantly met with opposition. See letters to Ephesus, Smyrna, Pergamum, and honestly what should have been Thyatira, but wasn't. And so based on who and when uh, surrounding its founding, Sardis most likely started with a strong sense of personal conviction and corporate mission, right? We can look at who started it. We can look at the, uh, look at the time it was started and we can say, boy, that's, that was probably a church that, uh, that really was birthed out of some serious sense of mission, and was seriously, because of the people who started it, rooted in the Word. Not only that, but by the time of this letter, Sardis had the same opportunities to face opposition as these other churches that we have already read about. They had a temple. Not the one that you saw there. That came about 200 years uh, after uh, this letter. But they did, at that time, have a temple to their version of the goddess Diana that we learned about in Ephesus along with all the cult practices that followed in the temple. They had that at this time. Not only that, but they also had imposed emperor worship of Tiberius because that guy gave them a lot of money. And they would not be here if it wasn't for the glorious emperor Tiberius. And so they had the same emperor worship that we read about in other letters. And while other churches who had present sin issues, 
we read about still commended by Christ. Still commended for their faithfulness. Still commended for their endurance. Still commended for their willingness to face persecution. Nowhere in this letter do we hear of present-day Sardis' faithfulness, endurance, or perseverance. Point being, any good associated with this church was probably long gone. And whatever the church had become wasn't very becoming. At least not to Jesus. Because as we read in verse 1, when it came to the pronouncement of their present spiritual state, while some saw evidences of life in the church of Sardis, Christ declares her as spiritually dead. Now this word necron, this word dead in this context is speaking to the spiritual state of the church as a whole. And similar to the word that I'm sorry, it's not similar. It is the word, (laughs) the usage that we find in Romans 6.13 where Paul writes to believers, Do not present your members to sin as instruments for unrighteousness, but present yourself to God as those who have been brought from death to life. Strong's defines it as destitute of a life that recognizes and is devoted to God. Given up to trespasses and sins. And maybe this is why we don't read about Sardis facing the same friction as other churches in its day. Commentator Warren Wearsby puts it this way, No friction usually means no motion. The unsaved in Sardis saw the church as a respectable group of people who were neither dangerous nor desirable. They were decent people with a dying witness and a decaying ministry. A church filled with people who were no longer devoted to God or really had a problem with sin. What does that kind of church look like? What do those individuals that fill that church, what must they look like? And yet it's said that they had a reputation of being alive. Maybe it was because uh, they were well-liked by all of Sardis for uh, their works of charity or their service within the community. Maybe it was because this church knew how to blend in and not make waves like other churches did. Maybe they knew how to have a good time and maybe they weren't always preaching about sin because that can be a real downer, Right? And so maybe this church figured that out. Figured out how to, how to go along to get along. Whatever the reason, Jesus sees right through their works and their reputation. And he isn't impressed. He isn't impressed. Instead, he declares them as dead. Now keep in mind, this declaration of spiritual death, it's not true of every individual member of the church. We're going to read on in verse 4 and we're going to see that there were genuine followers of Christ in this church. 
that there were genuine believers who will, as we will read, walk one day in white, in glory, in holiness, in purity with King Jesus. And yet, in the same way that we wouldn't walk into a porta potty. How many of you have walked into a porta potty before? Let me ask you this. How much Purell? How many, like, gallon-sized containers of Purell would you have to just throw in there like slop to feel and call and declare that Porta John as clean? Do you have a number in mind? I mean, I'm sorry, like, it's like, open it with my foot, don't let it touch my shoulder, go in and just kind of, I'm just going to leave, it's not worth it, I didn't have to go that bad, right? Disgusting! And in the same way that you would not declare it clean because you took a cap of bleach, or there's Norwex people in here, you took a Norwex rag and touched it with it, you wouldn't declare that thing as clean, right? It's not clean. But instead, it is defined by the defilement that has taken place in there. And in the same way, Christ looks at this church and says, yeah, I know there are, there are those in here who are keeping their garments white. And we'll talk about what that means, right? Who are, who have, who have kept themselves from defiling their garments. I know that that's in there, but I don't define you in light of the few. I look at this church and I look at the, the fullness therein and I see death and I declare you as such. And he is the only one that we read in verse 1 that can possibly declare it as such. Right? Because what does he hold? He holds the seven stars. And as we found out, that is the, that's the seven angels, that's the seven messengers, right? That's the, that's the seven leaders, that, and that's seven, that's the, that's the fullness. And so all the authority and all the church, I hold it in my hand. And so just try and come against my declaration of you, you can't, because I'm the only one who can declare you as such. And yet the hope is in that same hand, the one who can declare as death can also offer life because he holds in his hands the seven spirits representing the Holy Spirit and the fullness of his work in his bride, the only one who can offer life, the only one who can bring life to what is dead, the only one who can empower and grow and strengthen what is made weak. He says, I hold the right to define you and I have the ability to save you. I am the holder of the seven stars and the seven spirits. And the scary thing is, the one who holds it at this moment in the letter declares them as dead. Declares them as dead. And so Jesus calls the church and its people to wake up from their present spiritual state before it's too late. Let's read verses 2 through 3. He says, wake up. And strengthen what remains and is about to die. For I have not found your works complete in my sight or in the sight of my God. Remember then what you have received and heard. Keep it. Repent. 
Christ calls the church here to, to wake up in a tense that demands continuous action. This was not a, a one-time wake-up call, but a call to wake up, to stand guard. It is the exact same Greek term that we see in the Garden of Gethsemane, where he looks at his disciples and says, Guys, wake up and keep watch. Wake up and keep watch. Don't fall back asleep. I need you with me. The tempter is coming. No, wake up. And that's what he's saying to the church. It's this continuous, all-in alertness and a call to continued watchfulness. In other words, don't be like the kings of ancient Sardis who slept while their city was being overtaken. Don't repeat that history. Don't be like the soldiers who were not alert, who were not aware, who left the whole of defending their city to focus tunnel vision and totally lose sight of the enemy creeping over the wall one by one by one by one. Wake up. Be alert. Be ready for action. And he says, strengthen what remains. Because though I define you as dead, I have not written your death certificate yet. There is hope from the one who holds the stars, who holds the spirits. He says, it's not over yet. Yes, the overarching definition of who you are is dead. But there's still time. There's still hope. And so he says, strengthen what remains. This has less to do, my CrossFit boys, with bulking up. I'm sorry, this is not go get sick gains and squat 4,000 pounds. This is actually the idea of tying into to provide stability and support to, to allow for necessary growth. And so... What he was telling them to do is much like what gardeners do, right? If, if you've noticed the orchard in back of the church that uh, some of our students were, were awesome in putting together, when we first planted those trees, the very first thing that we had to do to these floppy trees in the field, right, what do you have to do? Stake them down! Yes, that's exactly what you have to do. You have to get something solid Pound it into the earth and tie it off to that so that when the winds come, when the rains come, when the deer come, they just keep coming. <laughs> right, Frank Burroughs? They won't stop. Yeah, those deer. Uh, when all of these things come that you are tied into something that is going to give you strength and give you a fighting chance to keep growing, what is it that we tie ourselves into? Who is it that we as a church, as individuals, tie ourselves into? Anyone? Church answer? He's always the answer. Yes, very good. He's saying, strengthen what remains. Tie it into the only one who can give you power, can give you growth, can give you life through His Spirit. Wake up. Strengthen what remains so that it does not die. Tie into King Jesus. You might say, how? How do I do that? I'm glad you asked. He says it. Let's read it. 
We do it by calling on him, right? To be, to be our Lord and our Savior. He says, I know your works. That you have the reputation of being alive, but you are dead. Wake up and strengthen what remains and is about to die. I have not found the whole of your works, the whole of your works complete in the sight of my God. They will not be accepted. So then he says, remember then what you have received and heard. So these people were not ignorant. They had heard what is true. In fact, they were probably fans of what is true. They were not persecuting the church. They were not burning the Bible, right? They were fans. They're like, yeah, I'm okay with Jesus. He did what on the cross? Yeah, that's great. I believe that. So he calls him back to the beginning, back to maybe what they affirmed to be true. And then he says, but now take the next step. Don't just be a fan who says, yeah, I love the gospel. Yeah, I love Jesus. Yeah, I'm, I'm totally cool with the word of God. I got no qualms there. Cool. Let's move on. He says, keep it and repent. Um, sorry. Remember then what you received and heard. Keep it and repent. He says, don't just be a hearer of the word. A wise man once said, don't be hearers of the word, but be Doers of the word. Thank you, book of James. He says, don't just be a church that says, yeah, I know that. Yeah, I affirm that. Yeah, that's in our doctrinal statement somewhere. He says, no, no, no. It's, it's not about affirming what is true. It's about living it. It's about living it. It's about taking that which you affirm to be true and by the power of the Holy Spirit, allowing that truth to wash over you and play itself out in who you are and how you live. And so remember what you heard. Keep it. How do we keep it? How do we keep it? How do we keep it from becoming something that we just hear on Sundays and then go off Sunday afternoon and the rest of the week and just fall to the wayside? I know for me, I keep it with my brothers who are reminding me of it. Who are putting it before me. Who are calling me out when I'm not walking in light of it. We keep it when we are all keeping it together, right? When we have those people who are helping us watch the walls, not just of the church, but the walls of my heart. Brothers who will have hard conversations with me. My wife is a beautiful example of that. She will, she'll, she'll call me out, but in a good way, in a loving way. We've, we've grown to that over 13 years, right? Where it used to just be we'd scream at each other and rely on the Holy Spirit to like give translation to it later. Uh, I think we have some good conversations that are necessary. But we are called to help one another keep it, right? This is a message to a church, but to individuals as well. This is a team sport. And when we don't, when we fall, when we fall short, and how many of us do? Ready? Everyone raise your hand. Church participation. Everyone raise your hand. Yep, there we go. Some of you are real baptist and you're like, no, no, I don't like that. Some of you are like, amen, preacher. Yep, right here. Uh, wherever you're at, you fall short. And so what do we do? We rinse and repeat. We go back. We remember what we have heard. We repent. Meaning we turn in a different direction than the one that we were facing. 
We lean on, we depend on this grace that we sing about up here in real time and we receive it with a grateful heart. And by his strength and with the help of our brothers and sisters, we take the next right step forward. We keep it. It's so simple. But would anybody raise their hand and say, yeah, that's simple? No. And so we need this message because there are things that are far simpler, aren't there? Like not keeping it. Like not keeping close ranks. Like listening to our words or the culture. Listening to what makes us feel good. Listening to what makes us feel comfortable. Listening to what makes us feel safe. Keeping those things to keep this life one that is one that we want to be living, not one that faces persecution, not one that makes us outcasts, not one that makes us have the world look at us sideways. That's easier, isn't it? And so, boy, do we need the word. Boy, do we need regular repentance. Boy, do we need community. Boy, do we need to regularly ask ourselves and ask those around us, hey, this is what the word says. Do you see this in my life? Somewhere along the way, this church stopped being a church. They stopped doing this. And my guess is it came just like the city was taken. One compromise. One ignored sin. One choice to not do what the word says at a time. And one by one, over the walls of the individual hearts, one by one, over the walls of this assembly, the enemy came in and the church was overtaken. And to brush off this wake-up call and cling to death would cause one to come against us we might never expect, nor would we ever see coming. Let's read verse 3. If you will not wake up, I will come like a thief, and you will not know at what hour I will come against you. Jesus coming against his church, coming against his people. In the same fashion as those who once defeated ancient Sardis, at a time and an hour unknown and unexpected as a thief would come into a home at night when it is unexpected, Christ promises to come against this church, its people, and those churches and people who are like it through the ages and to deliver swift judgment. Now, typically when we hear Jesus coming like a thief, we immediately think of his second coming and ideas surrounding the rapture. Uh, but I do appreciate John MacArthur's thoughts on this verse. I do want to share it with you because I believe it's a, uh, it, it draws out more of the truth and kind of helps us avoid some of the pitfalls in this verse. He says, the threat here is not related to his second coming, but is that the Lord would come and destroy the Sardis church if there is no revival. The only way to avoid the stricter judgments that awaits those who know the truth and turn away from it is to follow the path of spiritual life. You see, there was a promise here to a church, one of judgment, one they least expected. And yet we also cannot lose sight, as we've said already, that this church is filled with what? Individuals. 
that while this church is represented by a hole of filth within, it is still made up of individual hearts, individual followers, individual believers, individual unbelievers. And so while it sets the stage for the same judgment I think we see in Revelation 2.5, uh, where Jesus threatens to remove the church's lampstand and thereby bring the church of Ephesus to an end, I think we see that here. I think we also see something else as well. I think we also see some foreshadowing of something that truly awaits many who don't think it does await them. Scripture paints a reality again and again of many unsuspecting who will be facing the Lord one day in judgment. Jesus reminds us in Matthew 7 that the path to salvation is a narrow road that few find. And later on in the chapter, he says this, Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do many mighty works in your name? And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. That means that on that day, there will be those on that day who think that they're okay on that day. That they lived in an impenetrable Acropolis their entire lives. Because they threw a stick in the fire. Or because they signed a card or raised their hand or, or raised and met the eyes of the preacher at the right time and said the right words or, or did the right things. Things that other people looked at and said, man, don't you got it together. Look at you. You really, you really believe in Jesus. You're, you're really, you know, you're, you're one of those legit followers. You actually live what you believe or, or whatever. That people would have looked at them and said they are alive. That they would have looked at themselves and said, Lord, I'm alive. And he says, depart from me. That warning is here. That warning is all throughout Scripture. And so we have to ask ourselves, are we, in ever, are we in the crosshairs of that warning? And how do we know? How do you know? How do I know? Here we see that to those... Sorry, I got ahead of myself there. Um, however, for those who heed this warning that he gives and who conquer by God's grace through genuine uh, faith in Jesus that endures. What a beautiful promise that awaits. We see this in verses 4 through 6. Yet you have still a few names in Sardis, people who have not soiled their garments, and they will walk with me in white, for they are worthy. The one who conquers will be clothed thus in white garments and will never blot his name out of the book of life. I will confess his name before my Father and before his angels. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to his churches. Here we see that to those who conquer with Christ, he promises perfect righteousness and recognition. Some believers soiled their garments. And this is Jesus' way of calling out uh, pagan idolatry within the church. Those who had dirty garments in that day were not allowed to participate in in rituals and pagan worship practices. 
Instead, they were to come to these ceremonies, to these false gods that they worshipped in robes of white. And if they came in dirty garments, they were, they were turned away. They weren't able to uh, worship in these temples. And so using that imagery, that was probably and sadly uh, imagery that was all too familiar with the church in Sardis. Jesus makes clear that only those who keep their garments clean First, by declaring uh, Christ as their Lord and their Savior, a decision uh, that is made evident by their faithful endurance in the life that Christ has called them to live. A life, though never perfect, he pronounces as clean. That Christ himself pronounces as clean, thanks to the regenerative work of the Holy Spirit. These conquerors will walk with Jesus in perfect robes of white, which refers to their their holiness and their acceptance in his sight. Their name claimed and confessed in honor by Christ himself, by the only one with the authority to do so before the Father and the assemblies of angels, which promises their name will never be removed from when he first wrote it, which as we know in Ephesians 1.4, he wrote their name in this book before the foundations of the world were ever in place, before they even breathed their first breath on this earth. He had written their name in that book and his promise is the one who is mine will never be removed from it. We always want to look at that in the negative. Oh, does that mean that? Guys, this is a promise. This is a beautiful promise for the beloved that Jesus gives to them. And on the other hand, the name of those who remain in their dirty garments, either by choice or by ignorance, will forever be removed from the book of life when they breathe their last and they enter into eternal death. He who has an ear, let him hear what the church or what the Spirit says to the churches. To Sardis, to Harbor Shores, and to everyone who says Jesus is their Lord. And so if you're here today, and you know, if there's no guesswork involved, you know, you're like, man, I have, I have never entered into a saving relationship with Jesus Christ. I don't know the first thing about what that means. Or you know what? I heard all throughout my life what that means, and I just have never had time for it. I've said, no, I'm, I'm not, I'm not going to do that. I'm not going to surrender my life to him. I'm not going to ask him to forgive. What do I need forgiveness for? If you're here today and you realize that you've never done that, I want to invite you to do that today. To bow your knees before Jesus. To ask him to be the savior of, of your sin because of his sufficient work on the cross. Because of his perfect life. Because of his sacrificial death. Because of his resurrection, I want you, I want to invite you to come. Place your faith in Jesus today. Allow him to be your Lord and Savior. And yet for those of us today who would say, oh yeah, I, I did that. I, I prayed that prayer. I'm good. I read this passage and I say, I, I, I'm good. I would challenge each one of us to just stop and say, why are we good? Why do we feel so safe, so secure? Oh, because I heard it once, that once saved, always saved. Okay. And all I would ask that we do as a church, as individuals, is say, is there any evidence in my life that that prayer that I once 
prayed, that I'm banking on, that I can't find in Scripture, but that I'm banking on to, to just let me march right into glory. Is there any evidence in my life that the profession that I said I believed actually took root in my life? Because this was a church that had heard the word. This was defined as a church. They were not persecuting. They were not coming against the word. They probably had a pretty solid doctrinal statement if Paul was there helping them tailor all that, right? And yet this was a church full of people at some time that heard the word but never kept it that heard the gospel, but never repented of the life that they were living. We're not just called to be believers in truth, but we are called to profess faith that shows evidence in our lives, not that we are saved by our works. We know we're not saved by our works. We are saved because of what Christ did for us in our complete and total faith in that work of grace that God gave to us. That is what saves us. The question I'm asking is, how do we know that we're saved? A question answered again and again by Scripture. We look at our lives and we say, oh God, your spirit is alive in me, doing a work in me. I see it. Praise God. Others see it. Like you are doing something. Life is evident. And yet just like the fig tree that Jesus met on the road, there can be evidence of life with absolutely no fruit. And he looks at that tree and he condemns it. And he looks at this church and condemns it. Says you look alive. You look like I could reach right up in there and grab a fig. And yet I would get nothing. And you're as good as dead. And so Harbor Shores, brothers and sisters in Christ, Matt Vowinkle, whoever's watching online. Hi, Mom. We should stop. And we should allow the Spirit to do a work in us that only He can do to convict, to teach, to help us to see. Because even if we are, even if we have a genuine relationship in Jesus, I think we belong to an awesome church. I love this church. I don't think we're Sardis. I think we've got a lot of life in it and it's awesome and I love being a part of it. And yet again, I go back to something I said at the beginning. Each and every one of us has a little Sardis in us. We have places that are unguarded. Places that we are not guarding at all and we think we're okay and we're not. Little sins that we look at and say, that's not really a big deal in the context of things. Really? What is sin? Sin equals D word. Death. And we don't want it to spread, do we? We shouldn't. And so where are the spaces, where are the places in our church and in our individual lives that make up this body of believers that we are entertaining death, that we are entertaining a godless culture to speak into who we are and what we do, that we are allowing something other than the word that we are called to keep and to live, to define who we are and how we live. And so let us each bring our lives. Let us each not buy the, "Mm, I'm okay, I'm safe. No. 
Let's do the work of a believer and continuously surrender our lives each day and bring our lives before the word of God each day, seeking his life and rejecting the death that can so easily creep in. One enemy, one compromise, one sin at a time. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the message you gave to Sardis because it is a message for each of us today to seriously consider the truth of your word and how our lives either reflect it or don't. And we all know that we are imperfect. And so we thank you, Jesus, for your grace, your undeserved favor on a people that don't get it right. You don't ask us to. You ask us to come to you in faith and ask you to be our savior. And then you tell us, you command us to stay awake. And to keep on keeping on, to keep on keeping on in your word and what it says and living it out, God, for our good and for your glory. Show us where we're not. Show us where we fall short. Show us where we need your life to be breathed into our lives as individuals and as a church. We pray it in Christ's name, who makes it possible. Amen.